0: Welcome to the Institute for Management Studies Leadership Conversations Podcast, where we have leading thought leaders discussing their research and identifying ways that you can incorporate it to take your learning and development to the next level. Welcome everyone to this IMS Leadership Conversations Podcast. My name is Charles Good, your host, and I'm also the president of the Institute for Management Studies. This podcast is designed to highlight relevant research and practical applications from esteemed leadership experts and practitioners. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Bob Treadway, who is has globally praised consulting futurist, strategy advisor, and leadership educator. For the past 33 years, he's helped organizations and leaders look ahead, plan flexibly, and take action on the future. Clients like Gillette, Berkshire Hathaway, ExxonMobil, Hilton, the Federal Reserve, and at and to name but a few, use his services to help them understand uncertainty, anticipate coming events, make better decisions and develop robust strategic plans. And that's going to be the topic of today with Bob, especially with all that uncertainty in today's current environment. But before we jump in, Bob has a very eclectic background and I wanted to highlight some of his former jobs and and get more insight into how he navigated this very diverse career path, which includes an engineer for bridges, broadcaster, college professor, business broker, and strategy consultant. Welcome, Bob, and thank you for joining me today. And I would love to gain some insight because that is a that's a lot and a very diverse mix of uh, of different professions.
1: Early in life, I had trouble hanging on to a job. Might <laughs> be I mean, one way to look at it, but uh, truly, it's it. You know, the market has kind of taken me in various directions, and I've I've looked at several ways to kind of fulfill my wishes on what I wanted to do as a professional. And that's what kind of led to the succession of things that I did. There were also a couple of incidents, kind of trigger events, as all of us should be looking for in my life. One of them was getting drafted into the Army during the Vietnam War. I'm old enough to to have done that, which changed my career path from engineering into broadcasting. And then some things that my clients did when I was consulting to broadcasting clients after i left it took me out into a wider world which led to the work that i've been doing as you said for the last uh, 33 or so years so you know it, it I, I think you had a roll with the punches and uh, take the advantages as they come
0: well i love that and i'm sure that's offered you some great insight into your current career and having that diverse background and and I'm always asked, I'm asked by a lot of our leaders and our members to say, you know, how can I stay better informed of this hyper busy work environment with so much uncertainty? And from our past conversations, you've, you've enlightened me into some curated news sources, which I love. And the two that I really look at every day are that Morning Brew and Next Draft. So perhaps you can give our listeners a little more information on those two. And are there other ones that you would recommend as well?
1: I collect these. And I think right now on my website, there's a list of about seven or eight. And they, it kind of varies as to what it is your background is or what it is that your curiosities are. And, and these have been sort of, although I'm on the lookout for them, many of them have been uh, given to me by either people in uh, settings that I've been in or strategy meetings or IMS sessions. You mentioned a couple, Morning Brew, which is a, and all of these are free. Morning Brew is a free newsletter that comes out daily that kind of informs you of what's going on in the world of work and the world of business in many cases. I, I like it a lot. and. You can go find it by just putting in morningbrew.com into your browser. You also mentioned uh, one that's a, a little unusual, kind of quirky and off and offbeat. It's uh, nextdraft, nextdraft, all one word, .com. There's a, there's a venture capitalist in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, named Dave Pell, who had started doing this for free years ago. I think he's now on his... Oh, at least I, I think I've been a subscriber for six or seven years at least. And he kind of develops a top 10 from the internet. He's, he's nicknamed the editor of the internet. And he'll, he'll show you some things that you would have missed. And they're compressed into uh, an email that comes to you. So you can click on the links and go further into the stories. And that's what many of these suggestions are that, I dev- that I've passed along. They're pragmatic approaches to saving you time. And allowing you to see some things that are out of your normal scope of vision. And that's that's the objective. I'd I'd say one more that I recommend that I think is probably my my top vote getter when I sort of survey people as to what they found useful, and that is quartzqz.com or qz.com if you're up in Canada. It's a it's a, a free daily newsletter, but it has capacities beyond that. Many of these organizations Have expanded out into even deeper information sources but but those three i I think are are three top ones that i would suggest to everyone and what you want to do is not uh change your habits uh, not but you might want to say hey can i devote 10 minutes a day to making myself better and forward by choosing just one of these and as you know many of the participants that we've had in in ims sessions have found that one of the first things that they want to commit to as they return to their workplace
0: well, you, we're, and you're right. I mean, there's so many different news sources out there and this really saves you time. It, it gets reliable, accurate data news, depending on the one that you choose, so that that really cuts down the time. The other thing that I found to be helpful too, is that I just recently subscribed to pocket.com yeah. and that's a way then to save these articles into one source, right? So that you can have them all in one repository in your account. It's a free account. And that's been a huge time savings as well because there's always something that I want to send to someone, post somewhere. And, and that allows me to just put everything into that one source and then curate it. from.
1: And here's what people like me do. They hear something like that and I'm a user of Pocket myself and think, you know, that's something I had to mention in the seminar. So, you know, I appreciate mixing with people and, and being kind of a, a, a repository or a channel to pass these suggestions along to people who want to be, who want to be better informed and who want to be looking ahead, which is the whole uh, crux of what it is that I do with the Institute.
0: Well, and kind of extending that crux, I mean, let's go through some of these forecasting techniques that you found to be effective throughout your three and a half decades in the industry. And I'd like to just touch upon some of the bigger categories. And then if you could provide an example of each one, because I love the first one, you know, let's First, talk about the Harbinger Zones, and Harbinger Zones are those bellwethers, early adopters, leading edges, or precursors. You have an interesting origin story for bellwether, which I always remember. But then, you know, tell me about how we can use those to then predict something meaningful going on right now.
1: Bellwether is an an ancient term developed back in the medieval ages, and it refers to the practice of hanging a bell on a particular, on a castrated male sheep in a sheep herd. And shepherds used that bell to be able to hear where the herd is going, to be able to locate them, and to see what direction they're moving in. So it's used today as a term to kind of identify those those areas that are ahead of others. So for instance, we find that technology adoption might take place in a younger age group than it would in in an older, for instance, or certain fields have cutting edge aspects to them like artificial intelligence or genetics or robotics and and those kinds of things. I I came across in my scanning (laughs) a a unique example just in the last few days. One of the newer sources I've been using is called The Hustle. And they have come up with uh, something, they've identified something that developed through research in the last five years called harbingers of failure. And what these are, are customers of, on, on, test, on product tests that have adopted all of the wrong choices. They've been really bad at forecasting and it's great information. For instance, here are some of the products that they have really glommed onto over the last uh, decade or so. Crystal Pepsi, which you've never heard of very probably, Watermelon, Oreo, Frito Lay, lemonade, and one of my favorites are the Colgate kitchen entrees, uh, like Colgate lasagna. Wow. Don't those sound like great products to you? That's one of my favorites. <laughs> or Cheetos lip balm, and they they've been able to identify these people uh, by demographics and location. There are certain zip codes that are full of harbingers of doom, and these are the, these are these give you the idea. Of what it is that you don't want to do, kind of, kind of an interesting sort of a forecast.
0: So, yeah, that's quite entertaining and interesting because you know you learn a lot more about failures than than you do with your successes. But it's interesting to see that those all those products came at least into a beta form of development, right? And or right. someone thought at some point they must have been in demand or going to be somewhat successful. I would, you know, I would, I would question that motive now. But hindsight's always twenty twenty, I guess.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, there's kind of a reverse uh, psychology there that certain products don't do well in some of those areas, but, uh, you know, it, it, you know, the, the information that is surprising is oftentimes even more interesting than, than those that identify, you know, necessarily the slam dunk successes. Right. surprising.
0: Let's move into the next one, those micro indicators. And those are those small pieces that move with the whole system or network. And and I love the example that you use that a grocery indicator is egg sales in Indonesia. So if you could go into that, and yeah. Phil.
1: Yeah, I'll correct that. In the visual you're looking at it, there were two different things. The grocery indicator is something that a CFO of a of fairly large grocery chain told me was that he could predict the gross margin and with accuracy in any of his stores, whether it was going up or going down in any economy, based on the sales of one brand name product. Now I got it. Yep. Charmin, right? Yeah, exactly. It was Charmin tissue, which was, which was the indicator in bad times or stressful times. And of course we've had a,
0: we've had a played out very well in the COVID pandemic.
1: The, the egg sales in Indonesia was something I got from a question that I love to ask leaders, which, you know, who've been running large organizations, which is what is your metric? What is the, thing that you watch that gives you a leg up and a forecast of something that's coming. And I asked of the uh, of the CEO at the time of one of the largest grain companies in the world and one of the largest closely held companies here in the United States. And he said, egg sales in Indonesia. He said it gives him a, a an overall look at where grain sales are going globally. And the reason is that it's a uh, Indonesia is the largest by population uh, Muslim population, and their primary green source is chickens and eggs, and that and the government there tracks that statistic very carefully, and uh, he's been able to track that that way. I'll give you another one that you know will ring true for people as they hear news in these days, and that is sewage analysis in American cities for two things, COVID presence and opioids that's been going on for for the last several years and it gives us an indication of where cases are rising and falling in the United States and also opioid use to be able to identify where where mitigation efforts have actually been successful
0: that's interesting I didn't even know that anyone was examining that so it's good to know Um, so let's move then to the upstream looks and these are two to three steps up in the timeline, right? The cause and effect timeline that will give us some indication. You have a great example with the Powell Street BART station on how to (laughs) do it. But if there's another example that would connect or resonate um, or the construction example that you used.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the one regarding the revenue for the city of San Francisco, the system here in California does not allow many municipalities to see what their revenues are going to be because they're mostly based on sales tax revenue which is collected by the merchant, forwarded to the capital in Sacramento, and then it may be months before that material, before that information, and those funds actually return to the city, makes it extremely difficult to budget. And the, the chief economist of the city began to think about that in conjunction with some of his team members. And they said, well, how can we get an idea of what the sales taxes collections would, would be? And the merchants won't share that information, but they used kind of a workaround. They went to the, the BART station, the uh, light rail station that's closest to the biggest shopping district in the city of San Francisco, and then looked at their Saturday turnstile numbers and compared those to what the revenues were coming out of, coming back from Sacramento on an adjusted timeframe. And they were able to develop this uh, algorithm in order to be able to determine in advance what their revenues would be. There's a lot of things that you can understand by looking upstream. For instance, I often ask in a quiz with participants in education sessions, how would you determine, you know, the whether or not construction is going to take place a year in advance. And there's a lot of factors there, but uh, one of them is looking at the development of construction plans out of the architecture industry. There's a, there's a lot of things that you can see if you look at where they're coming from before they arrive.
0: That's great with that upstream look, but how about those signals that are hiding in plain sight? How are we better able to identify those that may be misunderstood or overlooked or even ignored?
1: Yeah, there's a, I've been doing this for a long time now and with a lot of different clients. A lot of things that are in the news, sometimes we fail to recognize what the after effects are going to be what the implications are going to be. But there's also uh, an awful lot of things that are just kind of there that some people who are thinking uh, analytically about them can identify. And I, I'll tell you a story that goes back a long time, over 20 years in my practice. I was doing a board briefing for a large telecommunications company. At the time, I was working a lot in that industry. and uh, one of the things that I presented the board with was a bit of a boilerplate on how to look into the future. And one of the tools I showed them was something I used in IMS sessions called the cone of relative certainty. And it says that, hey, let's stand here in the present, look out into the future, and look at the range of uncertainty as it, as it moves out there. Is, does it get narrower or does it get wider? And it obviously gets wider. And I got that out of my mouth, and one of the directors of that organization stopped me. And, I mean, he literally almost yelled at me, stop. And he said, I have never seen it presented like that before. He said, tell me something. He said, you're somebody who does forecasting. He said, take that cone that you're talking about and tell us three things that are going to affect this company in a positive way. In the next five years, three things that will affect us negatively in the next five years that you think that we're not thinking about right now. So here's where, as a consultant, <laughs> you're on the spot. There you are. Help. And I said, I, and so I'm not going to bore you with the positive. They have positive things. They had some good product development uh, issues and things like that that they were working with. But when it came to the negative, I said the first thing you've got to realize is that things can affect your system, and they were operating primarily in the Carolinas, don't take place anywhere near you. Because we are much more interconnected these days, and I gave some examples. I said, weather events. I said there was an ice storm in the Northeast last winter. It took down the financial service systems that support ATMs, so you couldn't get cash out of a machine in San Francisco because of all the ice that was in New York state. I said, there are things like that that are weather events or could be geopolitical events or things along those lines. And these guys who had the board and the senior management in the room just went berserk for a bit and talked about all of the potentials. And their nightmare scenario was that something would affect their provider of cellular phone service. This is over 20 years ago. so And they were getting it primarily from the what became Verizon Wireless at the time. They said, hey, if a dirty bomb floats into... New York Harbor and goes off, we're out of luck. We don't have backups, workarounds, insurance. And they talked about that on on mid-August 2001 in North Carolina. And on September 11th or September 12th, it was, of that year, I got an email because the phone still weren't working pretty real well from the CEO saying, how did you predict that? So he was talking about 9-11, of course, and I I wrote him back and I said, I didn't predict anything. I said, there was a 75% chance in the next five years that this could happen and you should be preparing for it, and asked him how the system had gone, and uh, they had done some things. They had backups. Their wireless system for their phone company did not go down. So there's an example. Those signals were hiding there in plain sight, and examples of them, like I just mentioned.
0: No, that's great. And and it's nice to have these tools now, right, that everyone can use. And if you know where to look, then you can provide these insights to your organization as well. So like what they did, I'd like to put you on the spot just a little bit and talk about a COVID forecast and, (laughs) and where you think things are going now, right? Because starting this year, it accelerated again with the new Omicron variant. Yeah. There's a lot of stress, burnout, exhaustion by individuals saying we're two years now or almost two years into it. Mm-hmm. When is this going to end? You know, how do you think it's going to impact my life, my business, how I work? And yeah. and really what I'm seeing a lot with organizations is hybrid work, and, and really how this is going to affect hybrid work in the next, let's say, two to three years.
1: So a couple of things, first of all, on forecasting, and I'm glad you're using that term because the The thing I often start out working with uh, clients on is to tell them not to predict. The prediction is really foolish. And now you're hearing it from some of the pundits as we talk about COVID. And I prefer forecast, and my definition is looking into the future with uncertainty taken into account, meaning that you talk about potential events in terms of percentages or odds or those kinds of issues. And... That a forecast is only a point in time that it changes with the furtherance of time and when you get new information. So I, I do forecast and I try to f- forecast in ranges and we're not gonna, I'm not gonna pop up a visual here, but I would started making forecasts for clients on COVID back in about late July and August of 2020. And one of the things that I tried to show them was that what are all of the factors that are going to go into this, including you just named many of them, resurgence, and we we talked about variance right, you know, right up front in in those days. And my timeline for returning to a, a, a substantial degree of normalcy was out in 2022. And people thought I was crazy. This is going to be over in six months. But now we've learned through two variants that have really set things back. And now we're looking at the, the variants of, uh, of Omicron, which we've had right now, et cetera. So there's a, there's a great deal of uncertainty. How do, you, how do you do that? Well, how do you forecast that? You look at potentials, et cetera. And you look at the things that you can count on. And you just named one, Charles. You know, hybrid work looks like it's going to stay with us post-pandemic. In other words, the ability to be able to communicate like you and I are now on this platform, as well as the ability to be able to be face-to-face. And companies uh, thought they were gonna be able to get people back into buildings, uh, back into office space early on. Now they've, they've set that back and now we're in sort of this morass of uncertainty. But there's, there's one thing that I'm, I'm, I'll hang my hat on and that is I'm 95% certain that hybrid work survives beyond this. And part of it is signals that have been hiding in plain sight. There's been a desire to do this for maybe decades. I can remember doing internal work with the Social Security Administration and one of the biggest internal issues was the inability to do distance work. There were certain categories within uh, the organization that allowed that, but there's deep resentment From an awful lot of employees who weren't able to do that despite the fact that their jobs would permit that to a certain extent or certainly through security means so a lot of these things are going to be there for a while now the forecast that i was developing back in august of uh, 20 i was saying march of 22 or later and it looks like we're there i i don't know if we're going to be back to normal my wife and i would love to travel again but right now it is just difficult as the Dickens to go outside of the U.S. borders, for instance. And organizations are finding that an interesting new development on the issue of hybrid work is that if people can work offline remote, or work, I should say, online remote, they have a certain level of stress. The least amount of stress among the employees is in the example of those who can actually go back into the office now. But those who are doing hybrid work are some of the most stressed and exhausted that we've found anywhere in the workplace in America. You may be familiar with that situation. So there's what I'm saying. I'm saying,
0: Hey, later. (laughs) Well, March, 2022, I mean, if you turn out to be right, I think you're going to give Nostradamus (laughs) your forecasting technique Uh -uh. profound. And I like how you stated too, right? With a forecast, because there's another um, educator that we've had on the, the podcast that said, you don't predict if you manage the uncertainty, right? So, so getting out of this mindset of, I need to predict it because you know it's impossible to do so. And the forecasting is only good as what you put into it and the quality so you don't have the garbage in garbage out type of effects. I love one of the quotes that I know you've put in your sessions is that, you know, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And I feel like everyone's been through those weeks more than those decades, right? Um, where nothing happens. I mean, the weeks have just strung along here. And I'm sure everyone's hoping to get some relief in sight. So that's what we're we're gonna hope for. So I'd love to before we end today's program, I'd love to kind of talk about one of those tools for understanding the impact a decision has and the implications or after effects it has on making that decision. And you can do this with a whole host of different decisions that you make just to get clear on those implications. Yeah, and the exercise that you normally do is you take a central issue, you have three distinct, independent implications. You identify the central issue first, and and then you say, and then what happened? Yeah, and then you build it out for as long as you can do it with somewhat with some certainty. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, if that's kind of the setup for it. And if that is, I'd love to work through just a quick example to give our listeners how this plays out with an issue that should be front and center on more people's minds.
1: Implication thinking is what I call it. And in the examples, uh, in the situations we have in the in the IMS educational events, uh, I like to start with, you know, a central question, issue, scenario, problem,
0: etc. cetera. So why don't we pick the issue of American birth rates that fell for the sixth consecutive year in 2020 to their lowest number since 1979. Yep. And this is not just a U.S. picture, but this is really a global picture. Because the national picture mirrors the decline in births that have been seen worldwide, and some trend experts say that it's been, it's been accelerated by the coronavirus pandemic. Yep. Now, the majority of articles what they try to identify is reasons behind, not implications because of it. And mm-hmm. some of the reasons behind the drop that I've seen and I've and I've kind of jotted down are it's closely related to that women are becoming a larger factor in the labor market. Right? They're having their family starting later in life, delaying marriage, delaying having, having babies, which, you know, from the first birth is 27 is the average right now. Back in 2010, the average age of their first child was 23. So this changing picture of motherhood has driven part of it. Also birth rates for teenagers have drastically declined, which is in probably most cases seen as a positive. And then how does COVID play into it? Right. I mean, having and they you want to go to a hospital? hospital? Yeah. you want to go visit a hospital these days? Exactly. <laughs> I was
1: talking to one of my neighbors yesterday, and they, he's, had, he's been suffering from a hernia, and he said, I need to have it repaired, cleared to have it repaired, but I can't get in for maybe another two years because of
0: the backlog of cases. So there and you the go. The canceling of elective surgeries is one implication <clears throat> of COVID, right? I mean, it's, it's hitting the healthcare system, but let's focus on this declining in birth, what are the kind of the implications that result from this fact, which we've seen this pattern happen? I mean, one I would argue is retirement and social security benefits are going to be reduced, right? So the retirement's going to be hit in the U S looking at the U S here not necessarily looking at it as a, from a global perspective. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think you may be jumping over a couple of steps there. Well, you know, one of the things that if we're going to have fewer people born in America, and we don't have immigration to make up for that, that many countries uh, use and find necessary, then we're going to have a smaller population. And with a smaller population, there's fewer people in the workforce. And with fewer people in the workforce, then they're not going to pay, you know, as much in tax. So, so what you just mentioned was maybe even a third level, but. uh,
0: You're right. Because that social security is that pay-as-you-go system, right? Fewer births result in fewer future workers, right. yeah. contribute into the system, and consequently can result in an everyone penalty, right? Where we're all going to be impacted by that if right. figures play out.
1: And what another and, and when you do these first level implications like we're doing right here, you want to make them distinct from each other. So <laughs> let me just say one that occurred to me because I had some experience working with a particular profession last year there's going to be less less need for OBGYN, those doctors, right? Right. So if there's less need for OBGYNs, then you say, well, maybe there's a couple of implications from that. And, you know, they turn to emphasize the GYN portion of their practice, those where they're dealing with, with women's reproductive health, for instance. And, you know, if there's less need for OBGYNs, I mean, you've got some familiarity. What what else do you think would result from that?
0: Well, you're right. I mean, with you know the medical profession being strapped, and you know doctors now are in short supply, but you know that might cause just a transition or a move into different sectors of the healthcare uh, industry, since they're not really seeing the demand in this one area. You know, and, and this really speaks to right the shortage of workers, right? I mean, yep. that's a direct result. And maybe a second implication on that shortage of workers could mean you're pushing up wages, right? and causing wage inflation.
1: Yeah, you could be. You could also look at, if you stay with that profession, you could also say that, you know, maybe there's gonna be retraining. Some of those individuals might retrain out or they might go to, uh, you know, be able to bolster the things that are happening in healthcare overall and fill in for some of those shortages of docs in other areas or take on traveling jobs and things like that. And then if we think about The U.S. birth rates are are down. Think about the effect on education. So in five years, right? Because this has been declining for some period of time in five years, it's going to have a deep effect on kindergarten and elementary school attendance. And as you point out, since this has been going on for some period of time, I'll tell you what's going on in tertiary education in, in universities and colleges. They're looking at something they now call it the cliff. Within the next five years, the enrollment, the available high school graduating classes are going to be as much as 25% smaller than they are today. And they call that the cliff, the the drop off of those enrollments, which means that there's more competition. So if you're a Harvard or a Yale or, you know, Columbia, you're going to get your enrollment. But if you're Iowa State or Cal State Fresno or something along those lines, you're going to have to compete in a much different way. And there's all of the implications of that. So, Well,
0: and they're seeing that right now with COVID, right? Because a lot of these land-grant institutions have built out their universities and they have that assumption built in that people are going to want that students are coming in and doing live in person. And over the last year and a half, I've seen it firsthand where a lot of these universities are having to think their practices right and different revenue models because students aren't coming in to stay in dorms. They're doing more virtual programs, virtual sessions, or even getting virtual online degrees. And how is that going to change the face of education, which could be a whole nother central issue, right? With, with how this is going to be impacted moving forward.
1: And it's one thing for purely academic. And I mean, really, really almost, you know, those kinds of things that can be done online, but if you get into a school, as you know, I've got some familiarity with agriculture since I work a lot in that sector. You're a school of agriculture and you're trying to turn out students and you're not letting them hands on with with pigs and 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 cows and you know, and poultry you know you can't graduate an educated individual so well
0: oh, you're right when it's a skill gap you got to be in there you got to be doing it hands on and that's going to be very difficult and i think you know i'm looking forward to see what innovations arise yeah. as a result of some of these challenges that the recent pandemic um has presented yeah as we reach the end of the episode, I always like to end it with a call to action. But in this case, we've given you lots of, of tips, tools, strategies that you can use, especially this implication diagramming. So I'd like to ask you, Bob, is there any resources or a book that you've gifted out recently that, that really would speak to these topics and get people more versed on, on implementing some of these, finding those signals in plain sight, looking upstream? Is there some resources, books that you feel um, would benefit those individuals. I admit with great
1: chagrin and my wife's disapproval that I do not have a book in print, <laughs> but but it's been it's been a busy thirty some years, and as you know, I'm planning on throttling back soon, so I'll be able to get to that. Let me let me just give you a, a book that uh, that I found extremely uh, entertaining, and kind of came from out of left field, and it's it's Annie Duke's. Uh, book called thinking in bets, thinking in bets, Annie Duke, uh, who's a, I think she's now on the faculty somewhere like Stanford or, or something along lines, those lines. And she's doing consulting, but she supported herself as a professional poker player for a long time. And there are many things to learn from what she looked at there. She also has, a has a section in the book that uh, covers one of my favorite techniques to work with clients, which is called back casting, which is where you don't forecast and look ahead. You go out and assume if it's a goal, assume you've gotten it, assume you've achieved it, and then think through all the steps that it took to get there. She's, uh, it's extraordinarily well written. I highly recommend it. It's one of the best things I've read in the last uh, several years. So.
0: Thanks for that reference. I mean, I also have recently read Superforecasting: in the Art and Science of Prediction. And that was a good book with getting good forecasting techniques. So that concludes this episode of the IMS Leadership Conversations podcast. You can send us your feedback at info at ims-online.com. If you'd like to subscribe, you can subscribe through Apple or Spotify. We can also be accessed through the Institute for Management Studies website at ims-online.com. And until next time then, remember, it's not what you don't, it's what you do consistently that makes the difference. Take care.